0: to private equity laid bare the podcast today we are going to talk about central america which i was just being told does not include mexico It's just right below mexico and uh for that we have two amazing guests we have alvaro who's uh, a gp so he's a fund manager operating in that region and irina who works at fmo uh, dfi who invest in alvaro fund so alvaro is going to tell us about how invest in that region, what are the characteristics of that region in terms of political investments, and Irina will explain to us how they select funds in that region, and in particular, uh, the Alvaro's fund. So thank you both for for joining. I'm going to start uh, by Alvaro because we just want to start with, with the investment side of things. So Alvaro, please tell us briefly about yourself and the company you are representing and tell us a bit about the private equity landscape in Central America, including what Central America means.
1: Thank you Ludovic for having me and and, uh, it's great to know you and uh, I'm very appreciative of your interest uh, in our region. Um, I've been involved in private equity for over two decades now. Uh, I started back in 98 uh, in the regional office of CDC. Back here in Costa Rica, and uh, that was the first uh, chance to get to see the investment cycle, the complete investment cycle of uh, private equity. And uh, now, uh, a few years after, uh, we have uh, uh, an, uh, the first and the longest-standing uh, GP in in Central America, based and managed by local managers, called La Fisa Investment Management. Which is the one I'm uh, director of investments for, and um, Central America. We we uh, at least from our fair firm's perspective, uh, uh, we define it as uh, Central America, Panama, Dominican Republic, and Colombia. That's our scope, uh, and that's the the region we cover.
0: Okay, thank you very much, and um what what kind of investments do you do do you do private equity private debt um what what do you do and when do you do which one and
1: well well our firm has 20 years of trajectory so we have done an evolution of that uh we started doing the traditional private equity or venture capital fund uh, mostly uh, aimed at impact investment in, in 2000 and now four funds later we have evolved our investment strategy And now we're mostly focusing on uh, mezzanine investments and uh, some uh, equity investments. And when we do equity, we're usually taking controlling positions.
0: And in the past, when you started, it was mainly minority positions?
1: Correct. Correct. We were basically using the typical minority position uh, and, and, you know, staying looking for, for SMEs. And we've been covering mostly SMEs and we've been uh, growing and, and scaling up into more medium-sized companies, um, but but we were focused originally in that and um, learn a lot from that and evolve our investment uh, in strategy uh, with the lessons learned.
0: Because usually in developing markets, it we we see more minority positions, right? It's pretty rare to have controlling positions. Mezzanine, I guess, is more usual. So, do you manage to have controlling positions? Like people are happy to give you control of companies in that region like from from what we read from case studies like it's like brazil etc is that it's a lot of family firms and people are not too keen to give control
1: absolutely and that's actually why we do a majority of our investments in mezzanine it's only in, in certain cases where there is the opportunity let's say of a change in control generational change or just the, the they want to uh, produce the exit of their, of their uh, investment in a company, that we can uh, actually do a, a transaction of uh, complete acquisition or uh, buying a controlling position. And we only do that in certain sectors where we have developed uh, the enough the skill and, and operational skills as well. And also the set of networks to really bring value addition to that particular sector uh, where we do actually go and take controlling uh, positions.
0: I see. So in a nutshell, if there is someone who wants uh, money from you, then if a person says, well, I don't want to give you control, I want to keep it, and you say, okay, then I have mezzanine on offer, and if a person says, well, yeah, I'm looking like, to like, for a successor, I don't have you know, a hair or some, someone to pick it up, and you say, okay, I can, I can pick it up. And, and, but then, why, when somebody tells you, I don't want to give you control, I just want money, why not doing minority equity then? Why do you prefer offering mezzanine? Because
1: we, I mean, and this is, this is part of the lessons learned. What happened was that when we did the, the minority positions, we did a lot of heavy lifting in terms of preparing the company for growth. Your, your investment thesis is usually, uh, regardless of the industry, is to build the company, to build up and, and scale up, and then sell the business but uh, as as you well pointed out, most of these uh, companies are family owned sometimes or or the majority of the times. And when we came in, in a minority minority position and did a lot of work in terms of not only just growing the business quantitatively, but really improving the way the the business was managed. I mean, improving information systems, improving governance, improving uh, all all the other aspects that give growth sustainability. Uh, What happened was when we got to the time of generating the exit, many times the, the family that owned the business wanted to keep the business. It was now a larger business, a much more manageable business with better prospective and, and perspectives, I'm sorry. And uh, then it was very difficult to uh, get an exit, at least selling the business exit. Uh, we had to do a, a buying back of our participation and realizing that that was going to be down the line, a problem. We've, we figure out, let's, let's have that conversation from the beginning and agree on a way to structure a mezzanine, which will bring them all that value added, but not the issue of the exit, which is at the end, you know, the last chapter of, of, the, of the business, but it's when you actually realize the value. And if you have a, a conflict of interest with, with uh, your partners at the time, uh, that will be a very difficult way to realize value.
0: I see. So, in fact, the main motivation was is, is the exit, uh, the fact that, that once you have, because at first when you started describing it, I thought it would be because they are free riding. So, I thought you were going to say, well, you know, I'm doing all the work, I have a minority share, and then these guys are just free riding on me with like all the rest of the shares, and then we sell a business, and I didn't get enough returns for all the work I've, I've, I've made. And 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 then I was thinking, well, but it's the same with mezzanine. If you're doing some actual work, and and so, but but then then I understood. Then you say, well, it's not for that reason. It's not for free riding. It's because of the exit. So because if I have a minority equity, it's not easy to sell that stake to someone else. Like who would like to buy a minority equity in a family firm that is very protective? What well, if I have mezzanine? Then we have an agreement that I need to be I need to be paid down uh, in in at a pre-agreed rate. And so it makes a lot more sense. Um, but then if you have a mezzanine event, is it still worth it for you to do a lot of effort? Because you, you kind of don't really have much of an upside. Um, you have, you know, you have a fixed interest rate or ish, right? And is it worth all your effort or do you make, you then do just less, much less effort? You say, okay, I g- we give you a few advice, but, you know, it's just mezzanine. So
1: it's a great question. And, and the answer is that we try to um, uh, structure our mezzanine with a, at least some sort of, <clears throat> we call it return kicker or equity kicker uh, at the end or, a, or through the process of the company uh, growth, mostly through revenue sharing. So by supporting the company and bringing in the capital and we are increasing the, the size of the company and it's, uh, it's the company is usually growing at least three times the size of the original uh, when, we, when we invested on. And we share on the upside of of that growth. So we try to align their interest with our investees by not only providing the capital, but making sure that that growth is healthy so that that revenue share is is also uh, sustainable and, and comes back to us.
0: So it's 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 kind of like you achieve that with some cash sweeps of, of 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 some sorts, right? It would be like you know if there is money left at the end of your in in the business, instead of it being paid as a dividend, it's a cash sweep towards the, the mezzanine uh, uh, holder, so that I can because they they you, they don't want to sell a piece of company to pay you, right? So you have to do it with the cash flow of a company. So it, it smells to me like a cash sweep system.
1: Yes, but most, mostly we, we try to aim at the top line. We try to get a portion of the uh, you know, incremental uh, revenue growth. Rather than we the earnings. Okay. Exactly. So we get a small percentage of that growth, that is, uh, incremental growth, so that uh, you, know, you, you get uh, paid out of what you actually bring forth to the table, which is growth.
0: Okay, so at the end of the day, you do the same thing as other people in developing markets doing minority equity. It's just you have structured it differently so that the exit is no longer a problem.
1: That's right, and that way, that way, we don't have to face the problem of having few exit e- avenues. You know, yeah, and also the timing of exit windows because sometimes you you can you can have a problem timing your your exit window with the economic cycle, with the yeah. uh, you know all of the uh, evolution of the company. So that just uh, allows us to, to really focus on the development of the business and not necessarily uh, be that concerned about the timing of the actual exit.
0: No, it sounds very clever and, and, and it's also, it feels less risky as well because at the end of the day it still is a debt instrument where you get some regular interest and so you get some early cash flows and so you, you kind of, you are protected a bit. If a business doesn't go well four or five years down the road you will have got some money back already.
1: Yes, that, that is correct. And it's it, it's helpful both ways because uh, also for the investee, uh, it is receiving a lot of value without the loss of control or the dilution yeah. effect, you know, and it is also bringing in somebody that brings additional uh, funding, additional availability for financing and offers a lot of flexibility in that financing. So it's a win-win, I guess. And, and, and it keeps a major issue, a major uh, disalignment of interest out of the picture, which is the
0: exit when you have to actually buy back yeah. But this problem, like I said earlier, this problem is there throughout developing markets. So, so then are, are other people doing what you just described or people are just waking up to it or people haven't noticed that you have, you know, done this thing that is working very well? Like everybody should be doing this, it feels.
1: Well, uh, I mean, it, it's it's certainly happening more, and and you know uh, our ecosystem is relatively limited, as you can imagine, uh, because this region is really not as large and and well in the map as as uh, let's say Mexico or Argentina or or Colombia or no, I'm sorry, Colombia, no, but Chile and and Brazil. Um, but players here, even though there were few, uh, are facing the same issues, and and we have. Uh, learn from each other. And, and I think even uh, the Latin America Venture Capital Association has issued uh, a study, which is very interesting. And we were part of that study uh, on these structure, uh, financing structures for uh, emerging markets. So yeah, it is, it is, the message is starting to spread that this is a,
0: a good okay. way forward as well. No, that's very cool. And talking about the, the region and what's unique about it, what, what, what would you say is special to Central America? Except for the fact that, like Costa Rica produces goalkeepers that are like out of this world, but 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 besides that, in terms of investing,
1: yeah, we, we all agree on that one. Uh, and um, yeah, well, the, the region, I would say, uh, I mean, it's it depends what you compare it with. If you compare it with other emerging markets, it's probably very similar to to others. Uh, uh, it's relatively small economies and, you know, it's, uh, it's very open economies. They, they do have free trade agreements with, with uh, large players and large markets like the U.S. and, and Europe. Um, it is mostly, uh, economies are, are composed mostly of family businesses. Uh, so markets do tend to polarize a little bit in terms of, uh, De- generating large co- uh, companies and a large, a long tail of small companies and we have a missing middle that's where we actually operate on the missing middle but the com- the, the region itself has uh, you know a, a very young population it is uh, uh, it's consumer uh, class is growing and 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 uh, it has a common language which is also very useful when it comes to to becoming yeah. a region uh, and it is increasing in its digitalization and also uh, it has a very rapid Growth in productivity is actually grow, this productivity is growing at twice, almost twice as the rate of of other regions in Latin America. So it's it's far from catching up, but but it's it's uh, having a good trend. And it's a location, and it's a climate, uh, and and different microclimates offers a lot of opportunities in the agro industry uh, on nearshoring, and and with uh, the the right uh, you know investment in education, I think we can we can have a, a lot of other sectors that uh, can be very useful uh, for, for uh, exports-oriented companies.
0: Okay, and, and so talking about that in terms of sectors, so it's mainly agriculture, but I would, I would have expected also a bit of tourism, any other sector that I'm missing? I mean...
1: Yes, obviously you have uh, tourism, uh, which obviously with COVID has been affected quite dramatically. So mm-hmm. we, we have to build in more, uh, you know... Um, uh, uh, you know, uh, re- resiliency in, in the economy. We need more resilient uh, sectors uh, now that we are facing these new challenges uh, of, of uh, health issues. But, uh, I mean, other other is also medical devices. Costa Rica, for example, is a champion in the medical devices sector. And and also light manufacturing, which is low volume, but but high time sensitive to market uh, production. That, that is also uh, a big plus for the region that we can serve.
0: From here to the markets, such as the U.S., for example. Excellent! Thank you so much. It sounds very exciting. Um, so it, it's now time to turn to Irina. Uh, I can see why she she, she picked your fund to, to invest into. Um, but so, Irina, you 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 work for uh, FMO, that's a, a DFI, uh, the Dutch one, um, and you are you are uh, investing across Latin America. Um, you have a long History of, of that, but how? I guess my key question is: How do you approach investing in Latin America when FMO is only based in the Netherlands? You have no offices there, uh, as far as I know, and you are not from there. And so, you know, it's it's a region that you don't really know firsthand, right? Although I'm sure you've, you've traveled there often by now. But so, how how do you approach when investing in a region like this, so far away from the headquarter and and with people that may not be necessarily from that region?
2: Yeah, no, that's, uh, that, that's a good point. And that's actually exactly the reason also why we selected the uh, Alvaro's fund. Um, so our key strategy is to um, invest in private equity funds. Uh, and then we potentially also co-invest with them, but we really, uh, given the local presence is very important, especially in the difficult markets that we cover, we, we find it important to have strong local partners. So, um, so our key strategy on the private equity side is to invest in private equity funds um, and that holds for Latin America as well. And I just wanted to briefly mention also in terms of definition of the region, um, because we don't invest across Latin America. Actually, we we exclude quite a few markets uh, there, um, many because they're high income countries, but also Brazil and Mexico, which is uh, yeah two of the largest markets. But um, I think we've seen that there's uh, a lot of uh, capital available in those markets, also private capital. So the, the key markets we focus are Central America, Colombia, Peru and Argentina.
0: And why, why do you think there is less capital going to Costa Rica, Peru and and, and, and the like? So, you know, it, like Alvaro's story seems great. So wh- why aren't, you know, no normal, like non-DFI uh, organizations just investing in, in these regions? Is because they feel they, they don't know them enough and they feel more reassured by something called Mexico? Like, it's a bit strange to me.
2: I think also the size of the markets, uh, they're, they're much, uh, much smaller, uh, uh, in, in my view, I think the size of the companies and the investments as well. Uh, th- this is actually another reason for us why we, we prefer to go with a fund. If you look indeed, the, the funding gap is mainly for SMEs, like Alvaro mentioned, and for mid-sized companies, they typically require quite small investments. So we prefer to also, uh, even ourselves, you know, like to center our investment through, through private equity funds and was somewhat larger investment. And then they distribute this capital where, where needed to, to these SMEs. But I think in terms of, um, yeah, the size of both uh, uh, the, 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 the local markets, but also from a private equity perspective, the size of the market, they're much smaller than the others.
0: But, but usually going small, it, you have a huge fixed cost, right? So it makes it quite expensive for you because if you sign a small check, you, you're headquartered in the Netherlands. You have to go there. You have, you know, you have, there's quite a lot of due diligence to do just for at the end of the day, a small check. And also Alvaro's fund size, I don't know how much it is. Maybe you can tell me. And, you know, any fund at 200, 250 and less is, is, is usually at 2.5% management fees because it's, it's hard to cover all the fixed costs that a fund is facing right so it's the same problem with at the fund level if you assign a lot of small checks to lots of companies it is very costly each time you have a huge fixed cost and so this entire chain feels very costly right like for each dollar deployed well,
2: I think uh, we, we are in this business as well for, for impact, uh, I, I must say that so I think for at least within Latin America, Central America is the region that n- needs most uh, capital in, in our view, and especially SMEs. Um, and we don't, uh, we, we don't find it that costly, like as i said like our strategy is to deploy through funds i think if we would start doing ourselves direct investments that would be very costly of course because i think then we would need either a local office or in any case dedicated uh, and much larger team uh, for 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 deploying those investments uh, and then for for private equity funds it's the just the standard cost structure of course we we analyze that and uh, um, they, they, can, uh, they can manage with, uh, w- with the capital that, uh, that is raised very, very well. And we, we, we like them a lot. Actually, I'm very happy I covered this region because in Central America, it's, uh, it's very easy to, to select. Uh, La FICE is the key and the most experienced with the longest track record there. So it uh, so was, uh, was an easy job for me.
0: I see. And in in terms of fees, does that give you an advantage to be FMO? Because you would come in with a larger check, you'd be a kind of a corner investor, it's a prestigious name. Does that then help you to to lower Alvaro's fees? No, so I think we we are
2: investor in in the fund, uh, and and that's also an important role that we play so so we invested in uh three and now we came in cassif four as anchor and we really hope uh that our like enabling the first close of the fund uh and reaching a, a, a sustainable first close uh will attract also a lot of other investors hopefully even private investors um but we're uh, yeah how how we look uh, uh, like we didn't we didn't look at negotiating the fees
0: okay well maybe you want to add that to your list but i guess you also you mentioned co-investment so maybe this is another way where you 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 get alvaro to send you some deal flow without you doing too much effort right
2: yeah yeah no so that's also key for our fund investment strategy so we always look for for co-investments uh with with all the funds that we uh that we invest in so uh we, we looked at a few transactions in the past and we hope to, uh, to look at many more going forward as well.
0: So Alvaro was getting agitated when I was mentioning that, that you should pay less fees to him. So Alvaro, t- t- tell us.
1: No, actually, just, just from our perspective, you know, um, and, and we do have to compete for funds. And, and we are in a region that is uh, difficult to attract funds. So we 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 really value the relationship we have with DFIs uh, as FMO, and and um, but we do have to com- be competitive in terms of fees. Our fees is much lower than than what you just said on 2.5. It's it's lower than that. So we do have to try to mark to market and and be very efficient in in how we uh, not only uh, handle our investment portfolio but how we the cost of raising the funds. And, and you know the, the, the whole thing has to be very efficient yeah um, and I, I would add that a very important aspect is really mobilizing two things coin investments because it makes a lot of sense for for investors like like you know uh, uh, our dfis that that can dilute their cost of that fee uh, and really leverage on the on the local expertise of the manager that they are investing with and also mobilizing as Irina said uh, the the private investors that that we, in this region we don't have the re- regulatory framework to really deploy pension funds uh, into into this uh, uh, you know uh, asset category so not having that basically we depend on family offices and and high net worth individuals and and you know and some corporate investment uh, to really channel these these uh, private investors yes. so. We, we actually did a part of the of the uh, thought process in terms of the mezzanine to really start to develop a sustainable set of results so that we can attract these investors, which are usually more hands-on or more uh, you know uh, MA driven, to really start to change to to test this this idea of of becoming an investor in a fund and make that part of their investment strategy as a family office, for example.
0: Okay. And so Irina, what, what is a fraction? Like in a typical fund you invest into in Latin America, what would be a fraction of DFIs versus non-DFI investors? And, and then what is you, you, the maximum you would have in a fund?
2: Yeah, so, so for, for FMO, uh, we typically take stakes between 5 and 25%. So we, we wouldn't want to be larger than 25% of the total fund size. And we also don't want to be smaller than 5% because then we think our additionality is quite quite limited or it means that the investor base is quite quite broad. Um, I think on average, we would do 20% of a fund. And in terms of euro amounts, between 5 and 20 million, depending on, on, the, on the fund size, we could go larger for larger funds, but those are not typically in scope. So we really want to anchor smaller funds um, uh, in, in these markets. And I think a, a DFI uh, to private investors ratio, it's still majority DFIs in the markets we cover actually, because as, as I said, so we don't look at Mexico and Brazil where probably you have different ratios. And I know actually from my previous experience with a commercial investor, where I also cover Latin America, um, there were much more um, commercial investors or pension funds investing in both Brazil and Mexico, but for for Central America, Colombia, Peru, and especially Argentina, it's, uh, it's uh, mainly DFIs still backing the, um, backing this, uh, this market and indeed as Alvaro said there are also uh, some local family offices and um, other uh, uh, yeah, smaller private investors but I think they typically want DFIs uh, to anchor and, um, and to, to put a stamp of approval I think.
0: Yeah, so you have your stamp of approval because you do these due diligence, etc. But you, are, you also have his mission to, 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 to help out. So how do you help out to concretely, right? How does FLMO more help Alvaro, if at all? How do you add value, you as DFI, to him? And, and maybe taking an example during this COVID crisis, which was very acute, right? And, and did you have a speci- special tool or solution for, for, for people during that crisis?
2: Yeah, yeah. So we try, uh, we try to, uh, to add a lot of uh, value to our investments. I think first and foremost, we always focus on environmental, social and governance aspects. So we have a large team of professionals in-house that are always there to support our funds. And actually, we think through, through teaching our funds and um, um, establishing in-house knowledge and resources on these topics, um, yeah, you have a multiplier effect, right? So then there's the spillover to, to the markets. Um, we also have uh, a technical assistance, what we call, so it's a grant program where we really help, um, uh, yeah, tune up resources, like if consultants were needed and for COVID, that's indeed a very, uh, very good question and a good example what, what we had and specifically actually with Alvaro's fund, but also with a lot of other funds, we had several uh, grant programs, um, so, so one uh, of which Al- Alvaros fund also made made use of was uh, remote advisory. So we had these uh, consultants that uh, we paid and they were helping portfolio companies navigate this crisis and especially the smaller companies struggled. Uh, I think everybody struggled to be honest uh, with this, uh, this crisis, but uh, for example, in terms of planning or cash management or risk management, um, or even um, s- some companies maybe took advantage um, of, of uh, especially if they're supermarkets or convenience stores. Or but maybe they needed to to develop on the digital side or innovation, like online sales, uh, things that they weren't doing before. So so we actually had some consultants supporting with. Um, with this type of themes, uh, uh, which um, I think was helpful. Maybe it's for Alvaro Alvar to, to comment.
0: Yeah, but it's, it, it, it feels still a bit a bit strange that like you, you would pay that cost because then the other investors are kind of free riding then on this cost. So are you sharing the cost with them? Or how does that work? Then? It sounds a bit weird that a that shareholder would just say, oh, I'm, I'm going to like pay for these things.
2: Yeah, that's, uh, that's us DFIs. We're weird sometimes, I guess. No, we just uh, we just really wanted. To, You're just uh, nice people. <laughs> yeah, I think I think also other DFIs actually had different programs, but uh, this was something specific from from FMO, and we didn't mind. I mean, if the others were benefiting, I mean, for us it was key that we support these companies. We also had uh, grants throughout our uh, healthcare portfolio, of course, uh, COVID-related, so that we really make sure that there are masks available and things like that. But these are coming from our grant program. So we have a dedicated pool of capital for for this, uh, which is is really grant funding. Uh, But then it's also quite competitive who gets it because of course we also have a lot of opportunities to deploy that capital. But uh, um, we we, we prioritize where we would have most impact and where, where there will be most benefit of it. And others can benefit of it as well, that's fine.
0: Okay, well that, that's certainly music to my ear. Like that sounds absolutely awesome. So thank you both for for, for joining and, and 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 participating to this podcast and and I hope that you know everybody will have learned a lot and, and, and I appreciate all the good work happening in, in uh, Central America. So thank you very much for for joining. So this was Central America Laid Bear. Don't forget to subscribe, rate it if you liked it. And congratulations on acquiring one more piece of knowledge. Ciao, ciao.